Hi, and welcome to Episode 1 of the Business Divorce Roundtable Podcast. I'm Peter Mahler of the Farrell Fritz Law Firm in New York City. And in this episode, Part 1 of a two-part interview, I'll be talking with Chris Mercer, one of the country's leading business appraisers, about the marketability discount and fair value proceedings. As those of you who follow my New York Business Divorce blog already know, the discount for lack of marketability, a.k.a. DLAM, is a very hot topic in business valuation circles and in some recent fair value cases in the New York courts. There's also been a flurry of recent articles by Gil Matthews, Bill Quackenbush, and Chris Best in Business Valuation Update, a terrific monthly newsletter published by Business Valuation Resources. Mostly critical of how New York courts have handled the issue, but also raising fundamental questions about whether there's empirical support for applying DLAM at the control level. One New York trial judge in a recent decision wrote that the issue of DLAM and fair value proceedings is an area of heated debate in the legal and valuation communities, and she practically pleaded for appellate court guidance. My guest, Chris Mercer, has been a major force in this debate in the BV community for decades. Chris is a prolific author of books and articles and a frequent lecturer, and since the 1990s has taken a very public position against DLAM's application to control interests. He's not just about theory, though. He was the trial expert in several major New York fair value cases in which he testified against DLAM with mixed results, including the Giamo, Chu, and Arizona iced tea cases. Chris's bio weighs in at 29 pages, listing dozens of books and articles and probably over 200 speaking engagements. He's the founder and CEO of Mercer Capital, based in Memphis. He's handled many hundreds of business valuations. His book, Business Valuation and Integrated Theory, is in its second edition and is considered by many to be the best standard text in the field. Chris also has a long history of service to the many professional organizations to which he belongs, including the prestigious American Society of Appraisers, which recently bestowed on him its highest honor by naming Chris a fellow of the ASA College of Fellows. I first met Chris about 15 years ago at a conference where we were both speaking. He's an incredibly smart, articulate person and a natural-born teacher, topped off with some genuine Southern charm. My interview with Chris covered a lot of ground. In this part one, we talk about the fundamentals of the DLAM debate. Part two of the interview, which I'll post at a later date, highlights some of the key court decisions, including the mother of all valuation cases, the Arizona iced tea case in which Chris testified at trial as lead expert for the co-owner being bought out. Chris, welcome to the inaugural episode of the Business Divorce Roundtable. Let me begin with a simple question. Why is the marketability discount important? Well, the, the discount for lack of marketability, or I call it the marketability discount, is important in valuation in uh, the valuation of minority interests because uh, the cash flows that are attributable to a minority interest in a company uh, may be less than and the, and the risks may be greater than those of the enterprise itself and so consequently minority interests sometimes trade for lower prices than the whole company. So the, the discount for lack of marketability on the minority interest side is important. Now on the controlling interest side I, I think that no one ever thought about a discount for lacking interest until the early 90s. And, and then, all of a sudden, people started talking about this thing, this nebulous uh, discount 
that uh, no one can really describe what causes it. Chris, let me interrupt for a second because it occurs to me that some of our listeners may not know what a discount for lack of marketability is. What's your working definition of that? Well, uh, a working definition of a discount for lack of marketability would be a, a discount from a freely traded or a financial control value that reflects the additional risks and the lower cash flow that would be attributable to the minority interest itself relative to the enterprise. In other words, you have less cash flow and more risk in a minority interest. Now, now I've seen many, many articles where the authors use to describe the marketability discount a comparison to the one's ability to call up one's stockbroker, for instance, and tell the broker to sell their 100 shares of IBM, and 72 hours later, the cash proceeds are, are deposited into their bank account. Comparing that to ownership of a closely held company, where, which has no, where the shares have no public market, and where some have said that on average it's going to take six to eight month, 18 months to market that uh, company to sale. That is, between offer and closing, you may experience a six to 18-month time period, and that it's the risk of, of everything that can happen in that time period that really generates the marketability discount. Is, is that any different than what you've just described? That is much different from what I just described because if, if, you, if you think about an illiquid minority interest, and, and by the way, the discount for lack of marketability is defined as an amount or percentage deducted from the value of an ownership interest to reflect the relative absence of marketability. The comparison there is cash in three days. In other words, I can sell a public stock and get cash in three days if I have publicly traded securities. Now, when we look at companies, it's, it's unfair and unrealistic to try to think about cash in three days. Companies don't trade on the New York Stock Exchange or over the counter. Companies trade in the market for companies and they transact. It does take some time to accomplish a transaction, but transactions occur and when those transactions occur, we observe the price. When that price in, the, in this hypothetical transaction that I, I'll be talking about right now reflects anything that happened before all of the negotiations, all of the waiting, all of the uncertainties that these people are talking about. They've already transpired and a transaction occurs for money or money's worth. So the logical, there, there really is no logic for a discount for lack of marketability for a controlling interest, at least in my opinion. And, and Peter, you know uh, that's an opinion that I've held for many years. I, I wrote my first article on the topic in 1994. It's interesting to me because I find <laughs> business appraisers as a group to be fairly cautious about putting out strongly held views on issues like this. I imagine it, it may have something to do with uh, the marketability of their services, but you, you have really come out loud and clear and taken a strong position on this issue, and I think you're somewhat unique in that regard. Does this issue, I mean, I'm a New York litigator, and, and this has been a hot issue in New York fair value litigation. 
do you find, and you're based in Memphis, and you, you're engaged to, as an expert in cases, I imagine, across the country, do you find that this issue has relevancy outside of New York in, in fair value proceedings? In, in fair value cases, almost universally not. The, the trend, as I observe, is moving much more toward uh, what I would call a concept of financial control. Not a strategic sale of a business, but uh, a financial control sale of a business, and then a pro rata share of that. Some of the statutes now say absolutely no marketability discount, no minority discount. Um, I think our friend Gil Matthews wrote a piece recently for the BV Update in which he characterized New York's permissive treatment of DLAM as a singular, you know, as as a unique approach to DLAM in the country. And I think I, I have seen various articles that have compiled the various statutes and common law, and some do support the notion that New York is unique in that regard, and that either by statute or case law, in fair value proceedings, DLAM is not permitted. By the way, Chris, you and I have been using this um, term fair value, and many people don't understand, does it mean the same thing as fair market value? What's the difference? Why are we talking about fair value? I use the term statutory fair value quite often to distinguish it from accounting fair value so that we we, we don't confuse the issue. But statutory fair value is the kind of value that is to be determined by courts in the various jurisdictions when uh, companies, when someone has been squeezed out of a company, for example, and uh, the the, transaction gives rise to the right to dissent, or there's parallel statutes in many states for oppression. And in in the determination of fair value itself, there's very little distinction between oppression and, uh, let's say, squeeze-outs or other transactions, dissenting shareholders' cases. I think that fair value, most places, is coming to be defined in the context of fair market value, but fair market value of what? Of the enterprise as a going concern. Because if we, if, if we don't define it in the context of fair market value, if we don't define fair value in the context of fair market value, then we really have, then the judge is going to have to instruct the appraisers on every aspect of the valuation process. Fair market value, you don't have to instruct me. I, I know that it's a hypothetical willing buyer, willing seller, both neither, uh, both fully informed, neither under any compulsion, both have the capacity and they engage in a hypothetical transaction. And the New York's cases, B-Way in particular, talks much very similarly to that, where a company where fair value is the company, the going concern value of the company bought by typical market participants. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. So if that's the case, then where does this marketability discount come from? I call that, in uh, several cases that I've testified, a disguised minority, a, a disguised forbidden minority interest discount. We're going we're gonna to be talking about some of these cases in a couple of minutes. Before we do that, I just want to nail down some basic concepts, uh, some, a few additional basic concepts. Now, we haven't yet talked about the minority discount, or sometimes called DLOC, Discount for Lack of Control, D-L-O-C. What is the minority discount, Chris? Historically, the uh, appraisers have talked about, and courts have understood, that there were three levels of value. One is a control, 
One is a marketable minority, like as if publicly traded. And the third, lowest level, is non-marketable minority, or for the value of an illiquid interest. Between the middle level, the marketable minority, and control, uh, we have measured control premiums historically. And people, uh, appraisers, studied control premiums and said, the control premium, if I take it away, the discount for lack of control is, 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 a, is really a discount, a minority interest discount. The discount for lack of control is the minority interest discount. So you got an elevator going up with a control premium and you're coming back down with the minority interest discount. Beginning in the mid-90s, appraisers began to realize that the transactions that we were observing to look at control premiums were actually strategic control premiums. And that to use those transactions as a basis for estimating a minority interest discount would overestimate the value or the magnitude of a minority interest discount by substantial amounts. By the early 1990s, we began to, some of us began to realize that publicly traded securities pricing, uh, when applied to a private company based on normalized earnings, yielded a controlling interest price. And we began talking about another level of value, the financial control level of value. And that is thought to sit right on top of the marketable minority. It's hard to distinguish between the two. So having made that adjustment, then there's no control premium because that control premium we were looking at before is actually a strategic control premium or an acquisition premium. So uh, if there's no financial control premium, then there's no minority interest discount. Or if so, if there is one, it's small minority interest discount, if any, is going very small. So that, that's, I think that's one reason why the majority of jurisdictions have begun to move toward a financial control concept and to specifically say no discount for minority interest. It, it gets kind of confusing. It's a little easier to see with a picture, but the levels of value chart that I use has four levels. It those two levels in the middle, the market, marketable minority and financial control, strategic control up top, and non-marketable minority in the bottom. Fair value, we very seldom talk about the non-marketable minority, but in New York, if you apply a marketability discount, that's exactly what you get. All right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I mean, at least New York, like the rest of the country, prohibits a minority discount in fair value proceedings. We can all agree on that. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the question that you consistently raise is whether New York's permissive attitude toward the marketability discount, in effect, allows application of a disguised minority discount. I mean, that's one way to put it. So, so the rule in New York is no to minority discount, yes to marketability discount. What you have written at great length, and you've lectured at great length, because I've, I've sat next to you while you've done it, about a court of, New York Court of Appeals case called B-Way. And I believe that was a dissenting shareholder appraisal case, right? Yes, it was. But it also, like the minority shareholder oppression cases where there's an election to purchase, it's the same fair value standard that gets applied. And, yeah, and specifically that Section 623 and Section 1118 are the same in terms of fair value. Right. Now, I'm just going to hit the bottom line on B-Way, and then I'm going to let you take it away, because you're much more conversant with it than I am, which is that in B-Way, the court endorsed, really, the approach that was taken in Blake, 
that a marketability discount is permissible, a minority discount is not permissible, and it upheld the application of a percentage marketability discount in that case. I don't recall the precise percentage. Do you? I, I don't recall. All right. But, it, but that's please share with us, Chris, your analysis of what B-Way got right and perhaps what it got wrong. Sure. In B-Way, in, in the case, the court elaborates on a number of principles of valuation, principles that relate to fair value determinations. And one of these is that the court should determine the minority shareholders' proportionate interest in the going concern value of the corporation as a whole. That's a fairly defined term. The going concern value, I would, I would interpret that and have as a financial control value. It, I, won't, I won't go beyond that right now. So that's fairly clear. And then fair value was calculated on the basis of the petitioner's proportionate share of all outstanding corporate stock. Again, the 100% of the value companies being valued, and that's the case. B-Way says clearly a minority discount would necessarily deprive minority shareholders of their proportionate interest in a going concern as guaranteed by previous discussion, decisions. Likewise, imposing a minority discount on a compensation payable to dissenting shareholders for their shares in a proceeding under either 623 or 1118 would result in minority shares being valued below that of majority shares, thus violating our mandate of equal treatment of all shares uh, of the same class uh, for the minority stockholder. So if you put that guidance together, a minority, a marketability discount is absolutely inconsistent with the predominance of the guidance in mm-hmm. in this uh, in this B-Way case. Now, Peter, I, I was fascinated by your blog post on Blake, and I read the decision uh, that your grandfather wrote. He he was an articulate guy. So, but but anyway, like you doing a little uh, say uh, historical forensics with your grandfather's case in Blake, when I was working on a large matter a year or two ago. I, I obtained all of the documents, the valuation documents, for the B-Way case. And what is really clear is that the only evidence for a marketability discount that was presented to the court in the B-Way case pertained to minority interests. They were relating to restricted stock studies and things of this nature, the kind of evidence that is not evidence at all of a marketability discount for a controlling interest. So I think the reason that we have the the confusion that we have with B-Way, that New York has the, the confusion that exists in B-Way, is that the appraisers were not able to, to articulate that. Keep in mind, uh, and, and that's not being overly critical at all, because this was back in the 1980s when all of these concepts were not that well developed. Well, B-Way was in the 90s, wasn't it? Like 95, I think. Well, I think it was was issued in 95. Right, but but I I agree with you 100%, and and, and I've always been somewhat skeptical that the courts were presented with, much less understood, the empirical issues that, that either do or do not support application of a marketability discount. Uh, at the controlling, uh, at the control level. One of the things I haven't figured out on my end is, is this really a matter of policy or is it a matter of 
is there an empirical justification for applying the discount? I mean, it seems to me you could get to the same result either way. Peter, n- n- no valuation discount has any meaning until you define the base from which it is taken. So let's assume that there is a fair value, okay, and for a company, and that's $100 a share. We, we just know that somehow. I could get to $100 by valuing it appropriately, or I could overvalue it and at 120 and take a marketability discount of 20 and get to the 100 only by chance. But uh, it, it's inconsistent with a, a determination of fair value to apply a nebulous, unspecified discount that no appraiser can really quantify or even articulate what it is. But Chris, if, if, if an appraiser is valuing a company using an income approach and they're using a buildup or, or whatever to generate their discount and, and they're using data from the public company arena, there is something to, certainly to the non-expert, the non-accredited business appraiser, sensible about saying that if you're going to be using public company data to generate a discount, why wouldn't you then have to consider some sort of a marketability discount? Because, again, it makes common sense that it's going to take me months, if not more than a year, perhaps, to sell my company. Well, a a couple of things. Remember, we talked about those two coincident levels of value, the financial control and and, and marketable minority. So if if I take a, a marketability discount because I took the uh, evidence from the public securities markets indirectly with a buildup, then I have turned that into a minority interest. And fair value is, as I said again, uh, to determine the minority shareholder's proportionate interest in the going concern value of the corporation as a whole. So most appraisers, I think many, many, probably most appraisers would agree that the build-up method will provide you with a marketable minority or a financial control level of value. You're familiar with the Seagroat case, I know. And in that case, which was also New York's highest court, uh, I forget the year, I think it was in the 1990s or early 2000s, what happened there is the, the appraiser baked a marketability discount into his build-up uh, method, his build-up discount rate. Is that, does that solve the problem from, from your perspective? Well, I think once again, you, you go back to that time frame and you go back to the fact that uh, the, the appraiser was dealing with a situation where they were, they were going to talk, the other side was going to talk about the need for a marketability discount, and he was saying, okay, I've already considered it. Maybe it's a point of risk in my discount rate. So it's, I would not call that sleight of hand. I, I, I mean, he, he, he said he did what he did, and you could probably estimate the impact of that, uh, if, if a good cross-examiner would have asked him where in the discount rate had he done so, and could he estimate the mm. magnitude of it. So you come back to the same problem. You come back to the same problem. I see. You can listen to part two of my interview with Chris in the next episode of the Business Divorce Roundtable. Until then, I'm Peter Mahler. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please recommend it to your friends and colleagues. And don't forget to keep up with the latest developments in the world of business divorce on my New York Business Divorce blog, where I post a new article every Monday morning.